Welcome to ASA Central Line, the official podcast series of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, edited by Dr. Adam Stryker. Welcome to Central Line. I'm Adam Stryker, your editor and host. I'm joined today by Dr. Steve Schaefer, who is professor of anesthesiology, perioperative, and pain medicine at the Stanford University Medical Center, and also editor-in-chief of the ASA Monitor. He's here today to talk to us about the Monitor and the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic, which happens to be the topic of January's issue. Dr. Schaefer, welcome back to the show. Adam, it's a pleasure to be back. Well, let's start off by discussing the major issue on all our minds currently. We're recording this in mid-December, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is uh, the big issue that we're all concerned with. And you've been keeping uh, your ear to the ground and providing daily briefings to uh, to a lot of different people, and you are certainly well-versed on the current state of the pandemic. Can you tell us where we stand today? Happy to do so, Adam. Um, first, just by way of background, so I've been modeling the pandemic since March of last year because I couldn't get the information from Stanford. I have been making my daily updates available to a list of recipients, which has now grown to well over a 1,000 recipients. Uh, and anybody, by the way, on this podcast is more than welcome to get them. Uh, just send an email to me. That's simply stephen.shafer, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-H-A-F-E-R, stephen.shafer at stanford.edu. And I'm very happy to add you to the recipient list. And the modeling extended to California, then to the United States, and then internationally. And I started getting requests for it. And I've been following this with daily modeling of the numbers. And to be honest, it's pretty frightening. So let me just talk about where we are today. Today, December 14th, 2020, is a pretty grim day in the United States. Today is the day that we passed 300,000 deaths uh, that are directly attributable to COVID-19. And obviously, there are untold uh, additional deaths from delayed health care, from suicide, domestic violence, other indirect causes of mortality. But just directly linked to COVID-19, the United States has now reported over 300,000 deaths. Additionally, the United States, as of last week, we're seeing 200,000 new cases every day and 2,000 deaths every day. To put that number in perspective, the United States is reporting more than one death every 30 seconds. It's about one death in every 25 seconds or something you know, horrific like that. But I think that helps to calibrate these numbers. Um, not only are we having 2,000 deaths per day, but the daily case and death rates are accelerating at about 4% per day. What that means is that by the time you hear this in early January, we will be reporting more than 3,000 deaths per day in the United States. So to calibrate that number, that's nearly the combined total of deaths from heart disease and cancer, which have for decades been the number one and number two causes of death in the United States, our daily death rate in January will be more than the combined total of what has traditionally been the number one and number two causes of death in the United States. So we are at a very difficult moment right now. And one other way of calibrating these numbers, one in every 20 Americans has been infected. One in every 20. One in every thousands Americans, one in every 1,000 Americans have now died of COVID-19. It is presently the leading cause of death in the United States. So that's kind of, unfortunately, the grim update of where we stand uh, as of mid-December. 
I wanted to ask you if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what's going to be specifically in the January issue. We, it's going to be about COVID, but uh, maybe give a little preview of the features that might be highlighted. Thank you for asking. I'm, I'm very excited about the January issue of the Monitor. A bunch of articles that really I think clinicians will find useful. Uh, there's an a article by uh, Uday Jain on COVID therapeutics because one of the other great successes of the last 10 months is developing some novel therapeutics for COVID. Um, the FDA decided this is not the time to engage in, in small molecule development uh, other than taking existing small molecules like remdesivir and seeing if they could be repurposed for COVID, which they successfully did. Uh, looking at other possible therapeutics like dexamethasone, uh, those two re- at this particular moment remain the only two drugs that are actually approved for treating uh, COVID-19. However, the development of monoclonal antibodies uh, has been phenomenal. And Regeneron has a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies, which seems to be exceptionally effective, uh, including perhaps saving uh, President Trump's life uh, when he received it in uh, September. And there are several other antibody cocktails that are highly active and highly specific for COVID-19. Um, this has work goes all the way back to the initial publishing of the genome by the Chinese in January. These companies started immediately to try to identify antibodies. There are additional antibody cocktails coming out. There are these new sort of pseudo antibodies that are amazing. So there's a lot of therapeutics as highlighted in that article by Uday Chain in the January issue. Then there's an article about uh, a vaccine update. Uh, that will appear. I, I wrote that with a, a science writer, Rich Simino, uh, and we review the status of the vaccines. Uh, and I believe we say in there, you know, it's, it's very likely that the two mRNA vaccines will be approved uh, by the time they read this, and, and that, that will in fact be the case. Uh, there's an article on herd immunity. Uh, it's one of the really misunderstood topics that's come up. What is herd immunity and what, does it have any role here? Uh, the conclusion of the article, just to jump to the punchline, is herd immunity is not really going to help us. Herd immunity will happen when 75% of the population gets vaccinated, but that's the only way we want to get to that number. Uh, we don't want to get to that number by having uh, that number of people actually get the native disease or we'll be dealing with an extraordinary amount of death. Uh, we have an article about uh, what's happened with COVID in academic staffing because uh, COVID has made it really challenging to recruit faculty, to staff departments. Additionally, many places are facing very uncertain clinical burdens where if you're out in a small private practice hospital where they're closing down elective surgery, they may close down your entire clinical practice. What does that mean? You know, you, suddenly you have no patients, you have no cases. Then they open up again and, and things want to surge back and then they may close you down again. I mean, the staffing models have been severely affected by COVID throughout medicine and certainly uh, by anesthesia. Uh, at a place like Stanford, there's lots to do just to take care of COVID patients. But if you're in an outpatient center that's not dealing with COVID patients, uh, it's, it's really a challenge. And finally, we have an article that I think is interesting about building rapport in the COVID era. This isolation that we've all been putting up with now for months and limiting social contacts and trying to do our best to bring the pandemic under control takes a psychological toll on everybody, uh, on us, on our patients, on our academic and clinical colleagues. And one of the feature articles that we discuss is uh, basically about how we maintain rapport, how we maintain supportive interpersonal relationships that get us through difficult 
and challenging clinical days. So it, it's, an, it's a great set of articles. And uh, I think that most clinicians will find the January issue of the Monitor to have a lot of useful information uh, about the, the pandemic. Where are we? Where have we been? And where are we going? And Dr. Schaefer, typically um, the Monitor articles related to COVID have been accessible freely to, to anyone, with the January issue being primarily about COVID, the entire issue, how are you guys going to handle the, the January issue? I'm very proud of what anesthesiologists have been able to bring to the table when it comes to COVID. And the January issue really shows how much we are bringing to our patients and how much we are bringing to the efforts to uh, address many aspects of this pandemic. So what the ASA has generously agreed to do is we are going to make the January issue entirely open for six months. And most anesthesiologists in the country get the ASA monitor. The point of making this open is so that people from all kinds of disciplines can see the contribution that anesthesiologists are making and can uh, benefit from the well-written and frankly pretty concise summaries of therapeutics, of vaccines, of issues about epidemiology that will be featured in the January issue. So it's sort of our gift to our colleagues in multiple disciplines. We're going to be making this issue available for six months, and I think it'll be very widely read outside of the anesthesia community. The January issue does sound fascinating. I, I really can't wait to read it, and I'm sure all of our listeners are, are going to be looking forward to reading all those features. So thanks for sharing that with us. And I also wanted to talk about the monitor for the calendar year of 2021 beyond the January issue, though. Um, when we spoke, I believe it was May of 2020, in preview for the new format of the monitor, you, you had told us that you were very interested in feedback about the monitor's redesign and new format. And um, I guess my question is twofold. Number one, what kind of feedback and engagement uh, metrics have you gathered from the readers and number two, a uh, preview for what we can expect as far as themes for 2021. So both great questions and uh, much appreciated. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, but we also have some hard metrics. There are various survey organizations that look at things like readership, how relevant people consider what they're reading to be to their practice, how interesting they find it, how often they just you know open it up uh, and look at it. And the uh, feedback that we've gotten on the monitor shows that since we changed to the new format, we have had considerable positive feedback and an uptick in uh, readership, an uptick in the relevance of the monitor, uh, the perceived quality of the presentations. So by and large, it's been extremely positive and it's been reflected in uh, objective surveys as well. So coming up, I'm also excited about the, what's going to be in the monitor this year. Uh, based upon feedback from readers, and we have an expanded editorial board, and the editorial board has been exceptionally engaged. So we've tried to put together things that reflect the diversity of interests of the ASA membership. So starting January with the 2020 pandemic seemed kind of obvious because that really is something that is top of everybody's list. Uh, but from there, we move on to a February issue, which I'm really very proud of, put together by Ganesha Gar on refugees and vulnerable populations. And it talks about anesthesia and healthcare in vulnerable populations. Uh, I, I heard a talk just last month from the woman who's the head of the Syrian American Medical Society about the attempts to bring care particularly during the time of the pandemic, to Syrian refugees uh, that are in Turkey and in Jordan. And, wow, you look at how much impact we can have as physicians in caring for these vulnerable populations, and it's considerable. 
Uh, Marsh, we're talking about de-skilling anesthesia. This is something that uh, is a touchy subject because on one hand, if you get a drug like Sugamidex, that really makes giving neuromuscular relaxants much easier because, you know, you can just always reverse it with Sugamidex. Well, that's great. But guess what? It doesn't take as much skill to use a muscle relaxant now if you have Sugamidex and you can always reverse it. Same thing with our video laryngoscopes. When I was in my own training in the 1980s, the best anesthesiologist in-house was the one who could innovate anybody with a Mac 3 blade. Well, now that we've got all kinds of video laryngoscopes, uh, it's just not that hard to innovate anybody anymore. And no longer can somebody who can innovate anybody with a Mac 3 blade is considered the, the best anesthesiologist. That just doesn't happen. These are examples of de-skilling. We welcome these changes. They make our practice safer, but at the same time, they make our skills perhaps a little less valuable. And it's an interesting dance that we do. We always go in the direction of de-skilling because we always go in the direction of patient safety. Uh, we'll be talking about mentoring in the April issue. Mentoring is near and dear to many of the younger colleagues that I have at Stanford uh, because they come in with primarily clinical expectations. And the question is, how are they going to advance their careers if they're primarily clinicians just doing basically 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. anesthesia day in and day out? Uh, May issue, we talk about pediatric pain. Uh, pediatric pain is something that is a real problem. Uh, very few people go into this as a specialty, and there's a huge need for it. In June, we're going to be talking about anesthesia and innovative surgery. Uh, one of the things that I'm facing in the months ahead is I'm coming up and looking at my own clinical retirement in about two years. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to retiring is there are all kinds of surgeries that I'm set to do anesthesia for that I have never heard of before I walk into the room. <laughs> I just, you know, constant changes in surgery, and our practice has to keep up. And so we're going to be talking about changes in surgery and how anesthesia has to adjust to that. Then in July, we will be talking again about COVID-19. This is going to be talking about the unequal burden of COVID-19. The burden of the disease is not shared. It is falling particularly hard on women, uh, particularly women you know, professionals, who often are uniquely burdened with having to deal with the demands of a career in the time of COVID and also tasked with child support. Uh, and you know, having to care for, for small children at home and look at their schedules and all that stuff. So we'll be looking at that in the July issue. August is always our government affairs and advocacy issue. September is a scope of practice issue. I can tell you right now, scope of practice is a hugely important issue to the ASA, and we'll be addressing that. Uh, October, we'll be looking at anesthesia in low and middle income countries. November, we're going to look at artificial intelligence and disruptive innovation, a subject in which I have uh, quite a bit of personal interest. And finally, December, we needed to talk about burnout, because this is something that a lot of people are feeling, and COVID hasn't made that any easier to deal with burnout. But we're titling this issue, Rediscovering the Joy, sort of the inverse of burnout. How do we rediscover the joy of anesthesia in our lives and in our uh, professional capacity? So that's what we have coming up for 2021, and I, I think it's going to be an a exciting year for the monitor. That sounds great. Uh, you know, one question I wanted to ask you after our last conversation about the monitor, you said that uh, your goal for the first six months was not to break anything. It's been six months now. Did you Have you broken it? I don't think so. Nearest I could tell, uh, we're continuing to do the things that we did before, and I haven't gotten complaints that anything has been uh, – has been broken so far. I have gotten a couple letters, what happened to this or that, things that we decided were not of particular interest, usually based on metrics. 
I, I don't think we've broken anything. And I will say that the collaboration with Walters Kluwer has been a really positive development because we've actually built some things with Walters Kluwer. Uh, they br- brought reporters and uh, writers and science writers. So we've built some things and we have more building that's going to come up in 2021, including expanded online content and other kinds of article types that we're going to be building in 2021. But as far as I could tell, we haven't broken anything. <laughs> At least they haven't told me if I have. Excellent. Well, also, as we stand here in mid-December, the first doses of vaccinations have been rolled out and administered as of today, actually. And I know that gives everyone certainly a sense of optimism and hope and perhaps seeing a light at the end of this tunnel. But do you mind putting everything in just a little bit of context related to that, to the vaccination? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for asking about it. First, the punchline. When you're offered the vaccine, take it. Please get vaccinated. Um, The development of the vaccine is really an unprecedented accomplishment. I personally feel it's a new landmark in human achievement. Thinking back to the 1960s, Uh, 1960 itself, when John F. Kennedy said that we're going to put a man on the moon, it's like Kennedy making that statement, and then 12 months later, the U.S. lands a person on the moon. I mean, it's it's an accomplishment at that level. I don't think there has ever been a single accomplishment of human intellectual firepower on the order of developing multiple vaccines in a period of about 10 months. Back in March, people asked me about a vaccine. I said, it's impossible. There's no way we've never developed a vaccine in less than a decade. So it's an unbelievable scientific accomplishment. And it really speaks to the fact that, you know, we're pretty clever monkeys. Having said that, Pfizer has now announced that they are going to be distributing 3 million doses of vaccine. Wow. 3 million doses of vaccine. That's great. But keep in mind, there are over 3 100 million people in the United States. That's enough to vaccinate about 1% of the population to place it in perspective. Uh, We expect the Moderna vaccine, which is also an mRNA vaccine, to be available, to be approved uh, this coming week. And then we're also expecting in January for vaccines from AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Now, those are both adenovector vaccines. In other words, it's an adenovector, it's a virus. Uh, In an activated virus, it's delivering the uh, uh, antigenic payload to the body, uh, those will hopefully be approved in January. But going from the approval, and again, an unbelievable accomplishment by the pharmaceutical industry, which includes incredible amount of basic science that fed into this accomplishment, as well as just the coordination of clinical trials and things like this. To go from there to bringing the pandemic under control is going to take months and months and months of incredible effort to distribute and get people vaccinated. And bottom line is the vaccine doesn't work if you don't get it. And so there's also going to have to be a public education campaign so that people understand the need to get vaccinated. And this is why if I think it was in the October ASA monitor, my editorial, I talked about teachable moments. As soon as the vaccine is available to me, I'm going to get it. And I'm going to encourage my patients when I see them preoperatively uh, or anytime in the perioperative setting, I'm going to say, do you smoke cigarettes? If they say yes, I'm going to tell them to stop. I'm going to say, have you been vaccinated for COVID-19? And if they say no, I'm going to say, well, please do. Uh, This is something that you can do to help bring this pandemic to an end. So the vaccines are are a hopeful sign, but 
one has to realize the size of our population, 300 million people. We're going to need to vaccinate about uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of them to reach what's called herd immunity, where uh, we just have isolated cases, but we no longer have um, the outbreaks that characterize the current pandemic. Would you say then that this might be even arguably the most dangerous situation we've been in with the idea that, oh, we're out of the woods because there's a vaccination, so I'm going to drop my guard down a little bit, and those measures actually are now more important than ever? Absolutely. So let's talk about those measures, because I want to be very clear about this. If everybody on the planet would agree to not interact with everybody else on the planet for six weeks, COVID would be gone because people's immune systems would clear it and it would not pass to anybody else. Now, obviously, we can't all <laughs> isolate because we'd all starve to death. You know, we, we, we need things like food, water, jobs, things like this. But the disease is spreading right now because people are giving it to other people. Most people who get COVID catch it at home. Most COVID cases are transmitted by somebody bringing it into your household and, and infecting everybody else. That's why the people at greatest risk are the people who live in multi-generational households. The kids get it and they bring home and the grandfather dies from it. So uh, the, the notion that it's all about, well, we're going to protect ourselves at work. If somebody brings it home, a young person at work brings it home, they're going to infect the rest of the household. And that's how, that's how COVID primarily spreads. So, those other measures are extremely important. And one of my frustrations has been our inability to just get people to do the simple things that actually work. How well do they work? Uh, one of our early issues of COVID, we interviewed people from the uh, Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. Now, these are anesthesiologists who deal with some of the nastiest viruses in the world, things like Ebola, the original MERS and SARS, which were much more deadly than the current uh, SARS-CoV-2. They have never had a healthcare provider get sickened by a patient. It's not happened once. Why? Because PPE works. What is, what's their PPE? They don't you know, dress up in, in, in things that look like diving suits. They put on an N95 mask. They put on a face shield. They put on a gown and they put on gloves and that works. If that works when dealing with the most dangerous pathogens on the planet, if people just simply did the same thing, wore masks, washed their hands, maintained distance, it would work. So we have to keep those other measures going. And with the cases surging, like they're surging right now, the vaccine's not going to help us. The vaccine will help us get this under control, but it's going to be months until we get there. The, our car is already going at breakneck speed, 2,000 deaths a day, and we are still accelerating. It's a very frightening time, Adam, because if we can't get that acceleration down, I mean, I thought 2,000 deaths would have been unbelievable per day. Now we're there. 3,000 deaths, which I'm saying I think we'll be seeing in January. Come January, that will now be the new norm, and we'll be looking at maybe 4,000 deaths a day. Things are not going to go back to normal in any way, shape, or form until we get these numbers down. And we can do it just by doing those other measures, those simple things. And as you say, if people say, oh, the vaccine's here, I can let down my guard. No, we let down our guard when we get the caseloads down to what they currently have in China, which is three or four a day. 
Speaking of uh, other countries, I just saw New Zealand is just declaring that they are completely free of COVID. I think they're taking away all restrictions. What do you think about a situation like that? The answer is they are correct. In New Zealand, they had no cases yesterday. They've had, it appears to be, four deaths in the last two months. New Zealand has done the same thing that China did when the virus hit, the same thing that South Korea did, the same thing that Vietnam did. Uh, The difference is is that China enforced their public health mitigations with the military. And when the military in China says you're going to stay in your house and you're not going to contact other people, you stay in your house and you don't contact other people. New Zealand didn't have to do that, uh, nor did South Korea. They took a more corporate approach. And also they took an approach in which the populace bought into the science And it's our behavior that controls this. Well, I know the United States is certainly a larger country with a much bigger population than New Zealand. What would you say to those that might say the United States, it's a much different animal here with um, the population size as compared to a country like New Zealand who could have an easier time managing this? So one can easily point to New Zealand and say they're surrounded by an ocean. They've got it easy, and they don't have some of these challenges that we have. But I want to give you a somewhat different analysis, and that is an analysis of ensemble that I made as part of my daily updates. And this is an ensemble of four Asian countries. Those countries are Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam. I put this ensemble together back in... Uh, July for just this purpose, because they have a collective population of 328 million. Uh, the most recent data, really from uh, early 2020, is that the U.S. population is 318 million. So similar size. They're 328 million, we're 318 million. They have a rate of cases and a rate of deaths that is one one hundredth the rate in the United States. Same size, many things going against them. For example, three of those countries actually border China and were had very early arrivals with very little advance warning, whereas we had about a maybe a six weeks of advance warning, which isn't a lot, but it's some. They had very little. But where we had on Saturday uh, 3,300 deaths, that similar size population had 57. Where we had on Saturday uh, 231,000 cases, they had a little under 4,000. The population of those countries, the citizens, were willing to put up with the modest annoyances that were required to bring this under control. And that includes following government directives and allowing uh, facilitating contact tracing, uh, isolating when told to isolate, uh, being tested when asked to be tested. And their governments took scientifically based approaches. And scientifically based approaches means you apply the well understood principles of epidemiology. There's no rocket science here. Unlike the vaccine, which absolutely is rocket science, there's no rocket science in the epidemiology of this. You take the public health principles that we've understood literally for decades and you apply them. 
Now we've learned a lot. We've learned, for example, that that indoors is much worse than outdoors, uh, which we didn't know back in March. And so our knowledge has improved, but the basic concepts haven't changed. They're, they're the same. And that's what distinguishes their success from, frankly, the pretty astonishing failure of the United States to deal with this. Let's turn the conversation a little bit more towards anesthesiology. Give us your take on how are specialties affected by the pandemic and, and things that we um, as a specialty should be looking out for. I'm asking this more in context from the joint statement between the APSF and the ASA on rescheduling elective surgeries. And so I just wanted to get your take on the current standing as how, uh, how anesthetic care uh, relates to the pandemic. So it's a great question. And I just want to again emphasize what I said before. One of the things that we can and should be doing is teaching. And we can encourage patients to get vaccinated. We can encourage patients to engage in social distancing. We can model those behaviors for our patients and, frankly, for our clinical colleagues. I go up to the physician's lounge at Stanford. This is like two months ago. And people were sitting around physicians around the table having lunch as though nothing was going on. And my comment was, uh, is COVID taking a break also? <laughs> uh, because... Uh, you know, we can model smart behaviors to our patients and our colleagues in terms of our role as directors of operating rooms and as people who are helping hospitals plan. Just watching what's happened at Stanford, we have significant roles in all these things. We are involved in the hospital evaluating PPE. We are involved in helping to create novel ways to conserve PPE. That seems to be less of a problem at Stanford now than it was six months ago. I think there are still hospitals that PPE is a considerable problem. Uh, we can absolutely help our colleagues evaluate what cases need to go during periods of surge when there's a tremendous strain on hospital resources and what cases can be safely postponed. Obviously, we respond to issues involving COVID patients throughout the hospital. Uh, I mostly do elective anesthesia, so I take care of COVID positive patients quite rarely. My wife is an OB anesthesiologist. She takes care of a COVID positive patient every week, uh, usually a couple patients every week, uh, because parturients, you know, it's not exactly elective uh, when the baby's going to arrive. And, and, and what she does is she looks out for her own protection, but also the protection of everybody else in, in the room. The nurses, are, are they following things? Let's keep the number of people interacting with the patient to a minimum. No reason to send the resident in. If you're going to do an epidural, it's just going to be done by the attending. So we minimize the amount of exposure. We are really in a position to be good citizens throughout this whole endeavor. And then there are specialized cases. My field happens to be modeling. And so what I've been contributing is, is modeling and, and simulation of the pandemic. I have colleagues who are inventors and they've been inventing respirators, you know, ventilators uh, that can be built very quickly and at very low cost. And those are actually moving through the FDA approval process. Uh, there have been a lot of innovations coming from our specialty directed to the care. So whether we're in a clinical role, just helping to take care of patients, whether we are in a managerial role, helping hospitals deal with the pandemic, whether we are in more of an inventor, uh, an innovator role, uh, creating novel pathways, creating uh, novel devices, creating novel approaches to epidemiology. Anesthesiologists have had a lot to contribute to helping manage the unfolding crisis. As far as you know, any intraoperative or long-term effects of anesthetics 
we just interviewed Dr. Cole about potential neurologic ramifications or cognitive net ramifications of COVID infections. Any information on the clinical front, um, whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, performing anesthetics on individuals that have this disease? Not that I'm aware of. You know, there's very old data that anesthetics might might have a, a negative impact uh, on the ability of the lungs to cure, clear viruses and things like that. I mean, th- these are data that are decades old. But in, in the case of the COVID patient, uh, I, I think one still has to take an, an organ-based approach, in part because of the protean symptoms. Uh, although COVID is primarily a form of, of pneumonia and, and acute respiratory distress, COVID also shows up as disseminated thrombosis. Uh, it shows up as strokes. It, it shows up as myocarditis. It shows up as renal failure. It shows up as kidney failure. It shows up as you, as we talked about in, in multiple neurologic problems. And also it shows up in psychiatric disorders. So the disease affects many, many organ systems. We're still trying to sort that out. Uh, we had an article in the ASA monitor about the bradykinin system, you know, one of several hypotheses for an underlying mechanism for the, the, diverse effects. But in terms of dealing with these, in, ter- in terms of anesthesia, well, we know how to take care of patients with, with heart failure. So if somebody has myocarditis, we know what to do about that. We know how to take care of patients with impending kidney failure. We know how to take care of patients with strokes. And the fact that the etiology of the organ injury would be COVID doesn't really change the fact that we'd still turn to our, our basic knowledge of how to anesthetize people with dysfunctioning organs uh, to get them through it with minimum sequelae. Well, Dr. Schaefer, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for your insight, your knowledge, the preview of what's to come, and uh, for all your hard work on the monitor, for sure. Is there anything before we go that you'd like to say to our listeners, information, anything at all? Uh, One of the best things any of us can do is just be smart. Don't get COVID. And if everybody in the country does that, we can get this. Good advice. Well, thank you again for joining us. This is Adam Stryker thanking everyone for joining us again on another episode of Central Line. Please tune in again next time. Take care. Improve your overall knowledge and confidence in working under COVID-19 conditions to safely provide patient care. Participate in a new complimentary course, Lessons Learned in Caring for Patients During the Pandemic and Beyond at asahq.org slash lessons learned. Cut through daily noise and dive into the ASA Monitor, your leading source for perioperative healthcare news. Read the latest source now at asamonitor.org. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or visit asahq.org slash podcasts for more.